Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I'm your host, Ken Seymour, back with our final episode of the season, if you could really call it that. If there are 54, 56 episodes in a year, can it really be a season? I I don't know, but uh, I wanted to go out with a bang, and I couldn't think of uh, a better way than having the guest that we have with us today, Mr. Mark Pellegrino. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I have to admit, I'm particularly excited. I, I have been uh, following the work of you know a number of different people, but specifically your career over the years has been of uh, particular interest to me. You tended to um, flit in and out of certain projects that I just, oh, I know that face. And then, then eventually uh, seeing you in uh, the, the monumental Bahamas uh, that was supernatural and such a fantastic character was just... Uh, a joy to behold. Thank you. It was a joy to work on. Um, so I, I think we should address the the most important question that I think everybody really wants to know at the very beginning. What was it like to work with Nicolas Cage and Harvey Keitel on National Treasure? Yeah, <laughs> you're right. That's the question on everybody's <laughs> lips. Um, I, and I'll answer it truthfully. Um, I had a ball working with Harvey Keitel. I mean, as, as an actor, I mean, I grew up on Harvey Keitel. He's like an actor's actor, right? He's, right. he's the old school American master. And so um, just to be occupying the same breathing space with him was was quite an honor. And I found out that he's easily amused uh, and and has a great laugh. And I I did everything I could every day to make him laugh because it was just so... You know, there's some people that has ha, have a laugh that's contagious, you know, because it's so honest and childlike that it's infectious and, and you pick up on it and it makes your day. And that's the way he was. So <laughs> I I played cartoon characters in front of him and hopped around like an idiot to make him laugh. And that that sort of made my day. Nicholas, you know, Nicholas was quiet, and very, very um, absorbed in, in his work and uh I don't I don't remember having too many conversations with him, but, you know, my scenes were mainly with Harvey. So we spent a lot of time talking. Yeah, I know. Uh, my son is also a large fan of Supernatural. And I when I told him that you were in National Treasure, he said, no, he's not. It's like he's got several scenes. <laughs> it's it's, it's yeah. easy if you're if you don't pay attention. It's like, but he's key. He's actually in a couple of really important scenes. Um well, you know, I always like to start at the beginning. And I, well, you know, I actually have a story about that. I don't know if it's Ooh. important or if you want to hear it. But I absolutely I mean, do. I originally went up for the part that Sean Bean played, which is the main villain. And uh, I, it happened to, to be the day after my cat of 21 years had passed away. And so I was hysterical, like just all day. And even when I went into the audition, it was the first time I'd met the casting director, A.V. Kaufman, who was is a huge uh, New York casting director and great person. Um, and I did my scene. It was fun. It was it was a good audition. And then I just broke down <laughs> in tears and started crying like mad. And her and she and I, I guess I don't know what the correct English is, but bonded over that moment because she had an animal, too, that passed away. And I, I must have been in there for about 45 minutes or an hour bawling. Of course, I did not get that part. <laughs> Maybe I was too sensitive to be the bad guy. But I did get the part of, you know, Agent Johnson, who was, you know, really the right-hand man of Harvey Keitel. And I got to work with John Turtletug, who's also a, a director that um, I, I loved and loved working with and loved his work. So um, anyway, yeah, it started with tears, that, 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 that show. Well, at least it at least it ended on a more positive note, and that's that's what we always hope for. Um, yes. Now, you didn't get into acting in the most traditional of ways. I mean, I, I've had the good fortune to speak with a number of different actors uh, over the years, and there's there seems to be a, a similarity in progression uh, on how you get into the industry, uh, and it usually falls, you know, like ninety percent of the time. Well, I've always loved theater, and I got into it here, and this is the way I went, and occasionally it's. I stumbled into it. Now, that seems to be more kind of like kind of like what you, you were like in a commercial workshop when you started. Was that right? It was worse. I had uh, I had dropped out of college. Um, I did very well in college, but uh, there's this thing after freshman orientation, you're sort of thrown into the the thirty five thousand k plus college population to fend for yourself, 
And all of the classes that I wanted for my major, which at the time I think was history and psychology or something, were all taken up. So I, I had to take, you know, really crappy classes and uh, that I had absolutely no interest in. And it so happened that I also fell in love with this crazy girl. And I was more preoccupied with being in love with this crazy girl than I was with my night French class. And uh, so I just dropped out of, um, of school and pursued this, this insane relationship that took me all over the place. Uh, and at the time I was working at a gas station, I was sort of with a band and sort of singing in this band um, and just sort of drifting and, and not really going anywhere except being in a relationship and pretending to be in a band. And I thought to myself, well, I got to I got to do something and I don't know what I want to do anymore. I wanted to be a marine biologist, but college sort of knocked that out of me. And and so uh, I, I think I saw an advertisement for uh, a modeling school. I, I won't name the modeling school unless you want to know. And they were does it matter? Does it are not particularly? Right? All right. So it's called John Robert Powers and they were giving away all these free things. So I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll be a model. And so I went, uh, I, I had long hair, I got it all cut off and I went to this school and I started taking some of their silly modeling classes for free. And then they were offering a commercial workshop for free. So the price was right, I went in and, and uh, the, the teacher was a commercial actor by the name of Bob Hover, I still remember his name. And he would make us do these things called Spoon Rivers, which uh, I found out the significance of that later on, but we would do these things uh, and we would act these things called Spoon Rivers, which were these little poems. And for some reason, he thought I had talent. I had no reason, I had no, I had no, uh, I didn't understand why he thought I had talent because I didn't know what I did right, what I did wrong from one minute to the next, but he set me up with an agent. And then that agent started sending me out and I started doing okay, but I wasn't closing the deal. So that agent set me up uh, with a list of acting schools. I picked the cheapest and the closest one and started going there. It turned out to be, I think, one of the best schools in the West Coast. And that's when I actually became interested in acting. It was when I saw what these people were doing on stage. I was exposed to the Sanford Meisner technique and I saw how it was unlocking people's personalities and emotional lives and how they were so authentic. And then they would bring that authenticity into this these scenes and that were so raw and magical and crazy and couple of the actors were starting to get work in the in the real world and I fell in love with the craft right at that at that moment and then devoted myself wholeheartedly to that totally by accident hadn't been a film buff hadn't been a theater guy wasn't even interested in that in the least uh, un, until I got to know the craft in in any good uh, learning environment there's often that kind of that kind of aha moment that that thing that clicks what what was something that you picked up, a skill that was imparted to you that you would not have expected to have learned in an acting school that kind of still stays with you to this day? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, um, I think a good acting school teaches you to be a very good listener. And I feel like you, you end up having a, a kind of ESP with people if you have developed your powers of listening and paying attention to a high degree, you can you can be a, a sort of an empath and really get a sense of what is going on with other people. Um, and so I feel like whatever sensitivities I had from growing up the way I grew up were sharpened much more intensely, um, you know, in in the honing of my craft. And I feel like that skill and that capacity has served me pretty well um, later on in life. Also, you know, I don't know if this qualifies, but you, you know, you develop a faculty of courage getting up there and, and that and that enables you to do so many other things and that you take into other aspects of your life that enable you to press the boundaries in so many other areas of your life, so. Now, did you get also, um, I, I assume that, that this would have been part of it, did you get some live interactions? I mean, obviously we often talk about the, uh, the movies and the television programs you've been involved with, but live theater is its own kind of entity that has a, a fantastic charm. Uh, were there any productions you uh, fondly remember back being a part of? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, tons. I, I, I loved doing theater. Um, 
one of my favorite theater moments. Uh, we, we rented uh, what is now the Hudson Guild Theater on Theater Row. It's one of the nicer theaters. Uh, we did we did a Vietnam, we did a, a, a two plays, Botticelli and Medal of Honor Rag. Uh, and I played in Medal of Honor Rag. Um, and that was a formidable experience. And, um, and then uh, I did Shanley plays. So I, John Patrick Shanley, who wrote Doubt, which, uh, and Moonstruck, you know, um, he wrote some amazing plays that were perfect for 20 somethings who, you know, who are just sort of lost, passionate, in love, trying to figure it all out. Uh, Dreamer examines his pillow, Italian American reconciliation are plays that I did that just, uh, you know, especially Italian American. I played the part that was, I think, originated by John Turturro on Broadway. And it was a great part. It had it with a great arc and a beautiful message about love and, and, um, and finding yourself. And, and um, I think one of the, one of the most profound, I've had a number of, the most profound experience I had was actually producing and working on Hamlet with my wife directing it. So we, we, we rehearsed that play for a year and a half. I read Hamlet cover to cover twice a day for a year and a half and rehearsed it with multiple people. And uh, so we were sort of like a Moscow art theater where we would you know, rehearse things forever and ever and ever and then finally put them up. And, um, and that was profound because after I did that, making, making Shakespeare's language your own, making it real and, and impulsive and active um, is, is quite a feat. And once you do something like that, once you've grappled with those ideas and those emotions for real, it feels like there's nothing you can't do. And so for, I mean, that never lasts, but like for about eight or nine months after I did Hamlet, if I was ever walking into a situation that was a little nerve wracking or difficult, I'd go, fuck, I did Hamlet. What the hell am I worried about? And then I'd go in there and do it. <laughs> well, that's actually kind of uh, leading into a, a somewhat a follow-up question. When you have uh, a work that you're, that you're trying to tackle that is in a different time period, uh, the language has shifted significantly and current audiences are not necessarily trained to understand the context when it was written, uh, the way that the language was conveyed. How do you try to breach that gap to make a connection with the audience? I think, look, I think the more clear you are about what you're doing and what you're saying, the more clear it's going to be to the audience. Um, you know, I've, I've read pretty much all of Shakespeare. I'm not, you know, a Shakespeare scholar, um, but I can go to a play that I've read four or five times and know fairly thoroughly and watch the actors and not, not understand a, a word that they've said. Um, and I know the action, I know every, I know what it's about. So it's, it's not, it's not the words as much as it is uh, the delivery. I mean, Sanford Meisner used to say an ounce of behavior is worth a pound of words. And, you know, you can, I remember people coming up to us in Hamilton saying, I've never understood the play before I saw it today. And, uh, and that was a huge compliment. Um, so I feel like if you know what you're doing and saying, the meaning is going to be clear. You may miss some of the subtleties, uh, just like you know, translating a language. If a language is fresh to you, if you're at the intermediate level, you can hear things coming in. But based on lots of cues and tones, you can sort of get the gist of what's going on, even if you don't know the particulars. Yeah, that's that's... There, there is a, a beauty to be found. It's just not always uh, at the surface level. And it feels like we're, we sometimes lose track of some of just the fantastic um, work that has come before and uh, in the day of uh, remakes and relaunches of, of things that we're already comfortable with over and over again. It's, it's kind of nice to think about that tradition continuing of some of the classics that will just hopefully stay with us forever. Um, now, as if they don't get canceled, they are trying to cancel the classics. It does. It does feel that way at the very least. Um, so here's, here's a question. When you're going into an industry that can be so competitive, um, whether you're talking about just the classical theater industry or even <coughs> into television and film, it often, it often is the case that there will be people that will help you become a better actor that will help you understand how the industry works that will take you under their wing did you have anybody like that 
that you encountered early in your career that that you just still think back it's like man the, the the stuff that this person told me is it was just so great and i can't wait to pass that on to somebody else i i can't say that i did um <laughs> i think I, the people i had initially in my with the, with the exception of my my mentor my teacher my acting teacher the people that represented me um i would I would not consider great human beings. And uh, in, in part, I stayed with them because as an actor, I was insecure and did, wasn't sure if I could get anything better, probably suffering from self-esteem issues. But there was, my first agent was a bit predatory, uh, you know, and, and had a very certain, a specific stable of guys in his, in his, uh, in his clientele and and was a little predatory with them and tried to be that way with me and it nearly broke my heart um, the way he tried to manipulate me and my management the, the my managers were, were were fairly decent um the first one sort of strange exploitative couple but the second one very good um uh and we just had a parting of ways as i moved up uh uh the ladder um, but not, no one that I think gave me career guidance. I no one that that molded me or took me under his wing. I can think of an actor right now who's very famous, who got all that from the very beginning. And I would wonder, what is he doing that I do that that I didn't do? I mean, how, why is he getting special treatment from my teacher? And why is this manager sheltering him? And why is he why is he having all these opportunities? And after only a couple of years and, and something like that isn't happening with me. Um, I don't know that there's any real answer to that um, other than, you know, probably luck and maybe being more savvy and more aware of what he needed to do and be, you know, I grew into that just like I grew into understanding. I wanted to be an actor. I grew into valuing the industry too, because once I was focused on my technique, I was focused on my technique and I didn't give a shit about anything else. And then it was years later, I said, oh, I got to I got to do something about my career, too. <laughs> um, and I, I didn't have people in in my camp necessarily molding me for for, you know, anything. Um, so I had to start taking care of that, which I did you know, several, several years later. Well, when you have to fight for it, it just kind of makes you more appreciative of what you have. Yeah. That's true. Actually, you know, I will say my my final my agent um, who I followed um, from Susan Smith to Metropolitan and to her own agency at Domain, um, she was really special. I have to say, she was special, and she would give me advice. And I'm not I'm not really up for people in the industry giving actors advice, but she would she knew she would she would she knew that I would go into a room prepared to work, <clears throat> and that the producers were looking at me not as an actor, but as as a potential roommate for six years. And it's like, do they want to live with this guy for six years? So she she begged me to adjust my my working methods to be more friendly to that um, very real condition of the audition process. And, and I did, and it it changed my life for real. She passed away a few years ago, but she was um she was very special to me for sure. Well, and that kind of that kind of touches on something I was thinking about. That as consumers of pop culture, um, we don't see as much behind the scenes now. Now, with the interconnectivity, the globalization of everything, now we see more than we ever have. But still, the the process of creating something that is going to be seen by potentially millions of people is a, a long and complicated thing. As you were entering into these, these processes, was there something that surprised you that was part of production that you could not have anticipated and just kind of go, that's, that, that's new? Well, I mean, the, the, what's, what's sort of shocking for a, for a long time for me, and everybody's learning curve is different, of course, is that, you know, when you're actually making something, it's nothing like the classroom situation at all. There's, you know, in fact, pretty much uh, until you get, you know, much more developed and work with much more developed people, the process is pretty much an obstacle to human experience, I, almost everything about it. 
And it takes, it takes a while um, for you to adapt to that. Uh, and not just not by moving around it, but by figuring out how to find your human moment when there's all these dis just distractions, right? I mean, I think, who was it? Uh, Jim Carrey said something like acting is distracting, hmm. um, right? It, and that's part of why you, you, uh, you work on a technique is, is, is to, folk, to, to hone your sense of concentration and focus because there's so many things getting in the way. And so the surprising thing, I think, is that you can have these great human moments with with anti-human, anti-experience things going on around you if you're focused enough. And and once you start to discover those golden things, um, you can make them more habitual uh, by just being more assertive about what your conditions are. Um, and you really need to do that. You don't have to do that in acting class. They're already there. But you really have to assert yourself um, in the work environment and say, uh, no, I actually need this, this space. Um, you know, so I think that's one thing that people who watch films aren't privy to. They don't know that things are shot out of sequence. They don't know how, how crazy the set environment is and how distracting a big, huge matte box and camera is when it's coming at you. Or if, it's, <laughs> or if you're talking to somebody and you're talking to a, a speck on the a piece of tape on the side of the matte box, instead of a real human being, um, you know, those are all things that interfere with your humanity. And yet you see these great human moments happening with people who know how to do that under those crazy circumstances. So over the course of your career, you've been in well over 100 projects uh, and you've had uh, several recurring roles between uh, Dexter and Lost and Supernatural and Quantico and now, Supernatural, I was a series regular. Quantico, was I a series regular in Quantico? I don't remember if I was a series regular in Quantico, but uh, Supernatural, thank God, for two years or three years, I got to this series regular. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had time to live in the skin of characters, not just yeah. kind of be a, a one-off. What is your favorite part of approaching the character process to kind of make it your own? Is there something that that really uh, that you do to kind of get into that mindset? Yeah, it's different for each each part. And that's what's that's what's fun is that um, the process is different for each each thing for Lucifer. Um, you know, I would basically get in go into a trickster mode for a couple of weeks before I went to work and it drove my wife crazy because I just I'd I'd be sort of sadistically uh, playing practical jokes on her all the time and it, and it drove her nuts but that's sort of the impish thing that I brought to the, especially the latter uh, Lucifer of the latter years uh, and then when when he became Nick I decided to do uh, I, I do these journals these diaries uh, from the character's point of view that really helped me, um, really helped me sort of immerse myself into the, uh, into the imaginary world of that, of that character. Um, it's sort of like fantasy work. Some of it's very active, but a lot of it's just uh, writing and sort of embedding that experience in me and then forgetting it and letting it see, seeing where that homework is taking me is, is often pretty exciting too. Sometimes it goes nowhere. Sometimes, it comes out in the most unusual places. And I, I remember when I did Bishop uh, for being human, I, I, you know, they told me that I was, that as a vampire, I was turned in 17th century England. Uh, and so I was like, cool. So I got um, uh, Daniel Defoe's Plague Years. And I, I read, I read all about London at that time. And I, I, I had written extensive diaries too and knew where I was, what my profession was, where I lived, how the plague affected me and the great London fire and all that stuff. I, I, you know, and that, that might be stuff that Stanislavski jettisoned early on in his, in his, uh, you know, experimentations with, with working on roles, but I find it very Im immersive, you know, and it, and it really helps me even, it just help it just helps me believe, you know, it helps me believe. So yeah, each character is very different. And sometimes, you know, if you have a characterization that's very strong, th that can do a lot of the work for you. I remember Robert Duvall saying something about a character. He didn't find it until he wore the shoes, like literally during a fitting, 
in the shoes there it all came to life um and uh and and rod steiger who was a friend of mine towards the end of his life would say very similar things you know bursts of inspiration can inform your whole character i think when he was doing the loved ones he was walking by a statue of bacchus and he said that's my character and so he actually had his hair made up the same way and he emulated that that piece of art through the entire piece and if you're looking for that you can see it that's cool um so yeah so it's you know it's different for each thing and sometimes it's just a flash of it sometimes it's a picture you know and that does it for you <clears throat> now do you prefer to play a, a protagonist or an antagonist what's more fun to you <laughs> well i mean i think the way we look at uh, heroes i mean the person who drives stories are the antagonists right the, the heroes are are reactive um, i don't think that's the way it is in life but that's the way we tell stories and and so um <clears throat> and so the the in 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 film and television uh you know the antagonist is the most interesting part because he's driving it he wants things um he's not trying to conserve anything he's trying to break boundaries and and push things to their limit. And hey, I, I, I'm not necessarily like that in life, so I get to live it in uh, my <laughs> fantasy world. Oh, so, uh, okay, I, I just, uh, I've, I've got to, I got to ask this. I had somebody, uh, uh, a friend of the show, just wanted me to, to ask in in these parts that you've uh, played over the last uh, couple of decades. Is there a nugget, a jewel that, you know, we, we know what we know you for because you've managed to have some great success with some of these big roles, but is there some small role that you had that you go, I, I really wish people would have seen this more because it was just so much fun? <clears throat> you know, um, yeah, <laughs> there, I, have a, I have a couple of those actually. I did this, um, I did this little film out in Texas called Bad Turn Worse. And I was the bad guy of the piece, I guess. Um, I never think of myself as that, but I guess I was. It was this character, his name was, what was his name? Giff, I think. And he was a, uh, he was like a cotton farmer in Texas. Uh, he owned a big cotton farm. But he was sort of like, he was sort of like a feudal lord. Um, and he had these long speeches with some really cool young actors. Um, and he clearly liked to hear himself talk, but they were always a prelude to something terrible happening and um, that he was about to do, or he's about to lower the boom on somebody. And I really, I really liked that character. I, I enjoyed doing that. Normally I don't like talking a lot on film, but I enjoyed his poetry and his, his storytelling sense. It had a very, southern quality to it you know and uh, i liked him uh, a lot and um let me see god it's hard to go back over things you know one of my favorite characters that i played was uh was on the closer too um you know it was about a, a seven or eight episode arc but i i i played a combination of two of my favorite gay men um uh tim gunn and carson kressley and i put those two together that's that's where I was sort of doing a Johnny Depp thing. He gets his inspiration from cartoons and people in life. And I just put these two, two guys together and, and played this character that was just such, such fun. I, I was hoping to come back in, in the major crimes, uh, you know, version of that show because it was such a fun character. Um, yeah, I think, I think those are, I mean, I could probably come up with more if I had time to think about it. Yeah, I, I know these are kind of out of the uh, out of the ordinary spectrum of questions that you might get. So, I, uh, uh, the uh, jaw agape, uh, no answer is perfectly fine in case we come up on that. <laughs> but um, so, okay, um, you've managed to maintain kind of um, maintain kind of a a visibility that is a little different than a lot of actors. So we're kind of leading into, I guess, leading into kind of the less, less uh, film and TV part and more kind of life and real life and, and, and what we, we deal with day to day. But every, every uh, person with a certain amount of fame has uh, uh, an amount of visibility and, you know, not everybody deals with that visibility in the same way. Some people tend to like to engage directly, which I believe would be <laughs> the best way to describe you. Um, yeah. 
what is it what is it about social media that kind of stymies do you think this normal communication <coughs> that we should be able to have a normal communication and kind of makes things break down to a point where it seems like we're talking at each other rather than to each other. Well, I don't know that that has ever been any different. We just see it magnified uh, now that we have this social media. It makes it more immediate. It makes makes the same characteristics we've always had through all of humanity more immediate. And because it's more immediate, it seems like it's this it's sort of traumatizing and strange. And but it's not the public square. I mean, the Roman mob was a real thing, right? That was swayed by demagogues. And in every mob. Um, there's there's a certain percentage of pathological folks out there that are going to deliberately try to change the course of the conversation or manipulate it or use it to their own to their own benefit. That's just a fact. I mean, I think I've read somewhere in the sociopath next door that you know sociopaths are somewhere in the twenty to twenty five percent range of human beings out there, and their 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 mouths their their voices are magnified on social media, often through sock accounts and, and stuff, but also because they're powerful influencers in their own way. And, and so it's not surprising to me that with a quarter of the population is fairly pathological that conversations can go off tilt pretty quickly and get very emotional, especially in, in the realm of, of Twitter, because <clears throat> in 240 characters, you tend to be trying to deal with um, you, you try to, you're trying to deal with, with, you know, current events and topical issues that have to do with very sensitive subjects like politics. And those aren't easily described in 240 characters. Um, but sound bites are, you know, and, right. and bromides are, and that's what some of these pathological people rely on. And I don't, I think the culture is turning in a way that the people who have the dominant voices are some of these pathological folks and they are, bolstered by a, a philosophy that I think we call in general theory or critical theory that, that enhances psychopathology. I think it enhances all the worst characteristics of humanity, uh, including the shutting off and walling yourself off to opposition arguments and trying to silence um, debate. That's part of it. Well, I know just kind of linking back to a little bit of what you were saying earlier about having the ability to read people, that that empathy. Do you think maybe that is part of what plays into a lot of these social media platforms where tone is difficult at best to convey? So people tend to read into the text what they want to read into the text. For sure. I definitely think that's a part of it. They say something like 75% of the meaning of a text is lost on the other person. I think that has something to do with it. I also think the lack of accountability has something to do with the ease with which a conversation can turn not only destructive, but savage even. Um, you know, people who don't have, I mean, men, we understand, I, I understood this growing up. You know, I grew up in I grew up from a broken home myself and the playground for me uh, was a place where a bunch of kids in broken homes uh, busted each other's faces open in their, in their anger. But that, that, and we, we sometimes exchanged roles being bullied and bullying, but always the response was, you know, if you're going to bully me, I'm going to hit you in the face. And that made us much more circumspect about the way we treated others, especially if they could hit really hard. And there's none of that, there's none of those repercussions, uh, not even legal repercussions for the things that people do. They can ruin somebody's life without even glancing backwards. Or they can fool themselves into thinking, ah, oh, it's just one job, they'll get another. You hear that a lot. And that's because the other person's just an abstraction to them. You know, they're anonymous just like as they are. And it's, it's as if you're just moving around pieces on a chessboard, it's a game. It's not real people you're messing with. And I think that inclines people to be much more harsh. And that, that's very much what you're trying to accomplish with your charity. I saw it just got funded on uh, Kickstarter, what, just March, middle middle of March? When did it get? And it got funded, uh, I want to say January. And we've been working now. we got a producer, uh, and we're working to create a documentary that we hope to turn into a television series. So that's sort of the 
the way that we're going to go. And we're, and we're also hoping to cobble together resources that, that we can um, network uh, legal foundations and psychological foundations together to help people who are victims of this stuff so that we can start empowering people to, um, to fight back. How do you think that process would look? Um, as I was uh, reading through uh, several interviews that you've done and looking, uh, listening to some of the other ones, one of the, the questions that occurs to me, when you have these large corporations that run the social media uh, uh, programs, their bottom line is the same as any other company's bottom line is to be as profitable as possible while providing the basic service of whatever it is that they want to do. But how do you make it in their best interest to create this framework that protects everybody? Well, I would say this. I would say... um... I would say I would say you can always make more money being honest than you can being dishonest. You know, when you're dishonest, you're you're fighting something that is um, that you really can't fight. It's called reality. And eventually it catches up to you. Now, these social media companies may be wealthy enough not to care, but the standard by which they judge speech is if, is is uh, one apparently uh, one, are you guys okay? You okay, Frank? Sorry, it's my dogs. Um, it, it's, I guess the standard is like some alg- some algorithm or something that picks out language and then they assess based on, on, on that. Um, but it's clearly unfair and clearly, I think, guided by some of the critical theory that I was talking about and is alienating a good portion of, of the country that's losing faith in the social media companies themselves, searching for other platforms. This is great. This is the way the market corrects dishonesty, I think. Um, and so if they want to maintain market share, you know, they're not always going to be on top. They were once nothing and they'll be nothing again. That's just the way the market works. Um, if they want to remain on top for as long as possible, I suggest objective, uh, objective standards for judging speech. And to me, there's only, there's only two. Uh, force and fraud. If somebody is threatening violence or they are lying, like slanders, um, libels, that's not free speech. That would, of course, mean that you have to deplatform the Republic of North Korea and the Ayatollah Khomeini and these and uh, any anything associated with the Chinese Communist Party because they are, of course, murderous frauds. Um, and that may, of course, mean deplatforming people who really deserve to be deplatformed. Yes, ISIS deserves to be deplatformed. Yes, all you know, Hamas should not have a platform. Sorry, they're a terrorist organization, and they, and and their uh, part of their uh, coda is to wipe out an entire uh, species of human beings, and that has no place in the public discourse. So yes, they would lose some folks, uh, but they would also gain integrity that they don't have now. Um, they they don't have that, and um, I think I think that is the way you appeal to them, if you can. On the flip side, uh, thinking on the small scale, the individuals that occasionally participate in these behaviors that end up harming others through social media, a lot of times they're very young. Uh, yeah. They have been indoctrinated into this specific set of behaviors by the environment that they're in, being able to get away with doing things that uh, that have these damaging effects because they don't have another force in their life that would maybe correct for that, show them a better way. We always hope that we can become better people through our experiences and through the people around us. How do you... How do you think that you work into that? I know at one point I uh, talking about uh, taking people off permanently. How do you correct? Well, let me rephrase that. I'm sorry. How do you allow for the becoming of a better person to be able to be um, in a position where you could, again, use social media? What kind of mechanisms do you think should be in place so that we can rehabilitate for lack of a better word Hmm. yeah that's interesting i think i think the first thing we need to do is think preemptively um 
And, and that is, you know, there are kids under 18 who are terrorizing other people and it's becoming, it's becoming a badge of, of, uh, of honor to um, call out check marks, to, to try to ruin their careers, to get negative attention, uh, to pile on people, to bully them, to tell them to commit suicide. I think there has to be tighter parental controls. I think, I think that we have the technology to be able to monitor our kids. Uh, they are your responsibility. And perhaps what we need to do is link legal action to some of these things so the parents are responsible financially for the things these kids, the terrible things that these kids do. And when they are spanked like that, um, perhaps they will start adjusting their behaviors or creating a separate social media for them. Um, uh, you know, um, I think we have to preempt it first. As far as rehabilitation goes, I haven't thought about that too much. Um, um, I, I mean, perhaps you'd have to do what any other person would have to do and prove, prove your, your, um, your turn of conscience to, to somebody else, to, to, to somebody who could let you come on. I'm, I'm not sure how that would work yet, though. That sounds extremely complicated, and I don't know how, how we do that. <laughs> I like to bring up the difficult questions. Uh, <laughs> I'm lying. I never bring up the difficult questions. Um, so a lot of um, a lot of how you approach things, obviously, just like anybody else, is based on the the belief sets that we that we come across, right? Um, and I've I've had this question for a little while now. Uh, just dipping into some of the philosophy uh, that you have uh, talked about in the past, especially uh, in regards to uh, uh, objectivist uh, concepts. So how would you say that, and this is going to seem like it's out of nowhere, but uh, <laughs> how would you say that a deterministic uh, viewpoint would saddle with an objectivist philosophy? Not at all. <laughs> I kind of thought that might be the answer. Yeah. Um, in that, it, it's, it, and that's not denying the influence of events uh, on a person or of genetics, biology. All of these things um, are influential, but what they don't determine is your capacity to think or not, unless you have serious brain pathology, right? The, the, our free will is not just about choosing between options in space um, or, you know, Sam Harris, I think now is big on saying, and maybe some other neuroscientists as well. Well, you know, before you became aware of moving your arm or thinking that thought, your brain was already, you know, firing. Um, and so therefore you really, we can't say that you have free will. Um, well, of course, all morality is based, is predicated upon the, the concept of choice, but what is the choice? The choice isn't just between, um, you know, uh, objects in space or, or between alternatives. Um, it's, it's between, it's between thinking or not. That's what the real choice is. I, will I focus and work my way through this problem or will I let it wash over me and just whatever sticks sticks and we're good. So, um, and that in that small little lever uh, is everything though. That's what can break you out of what the world is trying to tell you you're determined by. And I'm, I hear it everywhere. Biologists and psychologists are trying to tell me I'm determined by biology. And now sociologists and economists are trying to tell me I'm determined by my economic state or my, my, my ethnicity. All of my ideas come out of this narrative that's determined. Um, and it's, no, it's, no, um, it's, it's, it's not surprising then that they come up with these social systems that are barbaric <laughs> to try to rework all that determinism through another thing that they think is going to mold and shape somebody. See, and that's, that's, that's one of the, the arguments that I've always found the most interesting, the, the argument between free will and determinism. And it's not something we normally talk about on the podcast because we focus on uh, superheroes uh, <laughs> and things. That, I, I that think it's, sure. a, it's, a great, it's a great topic, you know, and it's fundamental today. I think the, the camps are roughly divided into those two areas. If you see collectivists and individualists, which I think are the basic political camps that are aligned, not in, our, in the mainstream, but I think in spirit, um, all the collectivists believe in determinism and the individualists believe in free will. And it is a battle between 
determinism versus free will. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's one of those things that uh, that and and we may actually never get the answer to. But I I love I love the debate between it, and especially when that debate is taken from a point of good faith, uh, mm -hmm. being able to allow the other person to make their argument and truly consider it, which in the in the land of short attention span doesn't really doesn't really happen so much anymore. Correct. But that is also kind of um, kind of uh, in a way what you've been talking about and dealing with for a long time. I mean, even I looked at one thing. It sounds like a sounds like a, a goofy thing, but the the discipline of mindset also kind of reflects in the discipline of physicality. I saw that you were. Uh, uh, in the martial artist mindset at, at some point. Is yeah. that accurate? Yeah. So what, okay, now, and now I'm going all over the place here. So I saw jujitsu, judo, karate, and kickboxing. Is that, is that correct? I used to teach Taekwondo um, way back when in my late twenties, early thirties. Uh, I haven't thrown a kick in 30 years though. I studied a, a traditional form of jiu-jitsu called Kodenkan jiu-jitsu, which is much more focused on uh, a judo, but there are lots of chokes and arm bars and stuff, but it's very traditional. And I got up to uh, just under my brown belt in there, and then I moved on. Now, my favorite art is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. The, the, the thing is, though, I only have a two-stripe white belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu um, because it's it's too devastating on my back. I, I um, I have a friend now who I think might teach me uh, old man jujitsu so that I can, uh, I can, I can now adjust techniques um, and, and learn some very basic stuff to transition from one to another so that I don't hurt myself uh, and can train because I'd really love to train uh, every day in Brazilian jujitsu if I could, I just can't. I remember being uh, exposed to that uh, for the first time. I think it was, um, the the first uh ultimate martial arts uh uh yeah. seeing the gracies uh, uh fight uh that was kind of nuts i i was always really impressed by that where did you get exposed to well uh, see that's ironic that you say that um i was teaching taekwondo uh and i wanted to start you know grappling so after after class um i used to take a jun chong and i would study privately with this guy jj perry and I would, when I eat from a green belt on, I was in his black belt class and I would be training with, with other black belts that weren't his, but that he just had a black belt class. Um, and he was phenomenal. He was the, one of the best martial artists that I ever worked with. And so I wanted to grapple. And so I found out about the Gracies, didn't know who they were. This is 1992, I think. And uh, I knew they had a studio in Torrance. So I went, I drove all the way to Torrance and I talked to Royce and Horian Gracie. And I'm like, and they were like, we're going to try. They were huge salesmen. You know, they were great martial arts and huge salesmen. They're like, <laughs> we have these things in Brazil called jungle fights and we're going to bring them here. And I was like, ah, okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> and uh, I studied with them for, I want to say two or three months before I hurt my back really badly, but it was just freaky amazing. Like I studied with, with, with Royce who was a, the fucking became the UFC champion for a while. And <laughs> one-on-one -on -one. like he would have me in the room with this you know green blue belt or something like that you know and that's how i got hurt because the guy grabbed me around the small of my back and like yanked it and uh, I, it just killed me couldn't walk out of there uh and then that's how i got exposed to it and then later on i i, I tried it again um this is about five or six years ago I went to the Beverly Hills Jiu-Jitsu Academy. My my friend Scott Kahn is now a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He, he studied there. And so I met up with Marcus Venetius and I started training with him privately and going to his classes. And I did that for about four months before I fucked my back up again. And that was bad. I was I did the first season of Being Human in Montreal with a back brace on the entire, oh, the entire season. I'm starting to see a pattern here. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think my back was messed up because I was doing four and five hours of jujitsu when I was 18, traditional jujitsu with throws and stuff. And then I'd go to work as a stock boy at Thrifty, picking up boxes and, you know, oh. and then just one day it cracked and my back was never the same. Yeah, that, that'll definitely do it. Yeah. So, okay, so I got to end with a, just a handful of questions we like to ask a, uh, all of our guests. They have 
ultimately, very little to do with anything other than just kind of giving a bit of personality to the people that, that we talked to. Giving. That, that's not right. Uh, exposing. Exploring. There we go. Okay. Much better. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So let's start with the, the basics first. Um, uh, linking back to uh, the, the acting side of things, uh, we talk about comic book films all the time. <clears throat> have you been a fan of comic books at any point during your life? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I used to collect comic books when I was, uh, about nine or 10, I used to collect incredible Hulks nice. and my stepbrother would collect daredevils and we would go to the local comic book store and we would buy our batch of comics. I still have them. Some of them are worth hundreds of dollars. Um, still, I, I think the lowest, I think I have a number six Hulk, which is probably in, nice. in near mint condition. That's, that's pretty, expensive still and we would sit on saturdays and sundays in the summertime and read our comic books and sometimes draw pictures and stuff yeah i was a big huge fan of that and then later on you know i evolved into uh the vertigo comics you know um nice. walking dead got me on the track of a bunch of other like 100 bullets and stuff like that very cool if you had your druthers uh your favorite choice from any comic whether it's superhero related or more in the sci-fi horror range who would you love to play more than anybody wow i mean i mean i would i would say the joker you know but after seeing not just heath ledger but now joaquin phoenix's version that was i don't know i i don't know what you can do with it i mean uh you know what i'm saying (laughs) it's yeah, on Heath, Heath's, Heath's was poetic, and and uh, Joaquin's was just so visceral and deep, and even even I hate to say it for such a nihilistic movie, but sympathetic and and sad, and uh, you know I can't look at Joker the same way anymore, um, you know. So I would say that, or or you know, one of my favorite comic book characters that I could never play because I just don't have the body for it. Conan the Barbarian is one of the coolest dudes on the nice. fucking planet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to hard to replace uh, Arnold from back in the day. He he had a he had the right physicality for that. The uh, the newer one maybe not quite so fun, but I, I don't blame any of the uh, people involved. And I I just don't know if it has the same impact today that it maybe did when it first came out. I don't, yeah, I don't think Conan would resonate in our culture today as well because he's, he's, he's a, he's an unambiguous, straight up dude, you know, and, um, but he's, he's, he's actually really witty and funny and cool. And there's a lot, there's a lot to that character that I don't know that anybody who has that physicality can, can bring that kind of personality to it, uh, really. I don't know. I haven't seen the new ones. So I don't know. Now, I had one that I thought of for you, if you ever get the chance. Now, with this whole uh, restore the Snyderverse uh, thing that's that's been going on, trying to get its own head of steam, if they were to keep that out, well, Darkseid is uh, a major villain in that. I thought, you know, it. I bet he would be an excellent Isaiah, uh, who is the, the high father, uh, the opposite part of Darkseid, uh, the new oh, cool. Genesis side of it. Uh, just in terms of some of the some of the nuance that the, <coughs> that character can have, because none of those characters are straight up heroic or villainous. They have some some interesting uh, bits and pieces that can go along the way. Awesome. Okay. So all right. So now nothing to do with acting. Uh, everybody loves pudding. Sounds like it's about food. So we ask food question. Uh, are are you a pizza person? And if so, what kind of a pizza are you? most affectionate for oh my fans are going to love this because we argue about pineapple pizza all the time first of all I, I am a huge pizza fan and you can put anything on pizza and it's going to be fantastic as far as i'm concerned oh. but i'm going to irritate my adopted son in italy right now charlie i hope you're watching this uh give me that pineapple pizza give it to me Charlie's having a heart attack right now. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, I, I agree. Anything on a pizza uh, short of concrete, and maybe even that might be just fine. I, I think concrete would work too. But uh, all right. So um, all right. So the last thing that I will that I will ask uh, to 
that I just have to touch on because I am such a huge Supernatural fan. Um, when you were involved in the show, did you ever get an idea of the number of deaths that had kind of um, piled up over the the seasons that occurred? No. Okay. So being the uh, the uh, overly um, overly um, boring, I guess I've been described as, but I, I love to look at the numbers, and I did a kill count for Supernatural. Okay. Went through every single episode. Uh, completely broke down by uh, by characters, by uh, creature types, every every little thing. If you had to guess how many kills were in 15 seasons of Supernatural, what would you think that number would be? Well, I think I remember hearing something th- that uh, that um, uh, Dean's character died something like 200 times or somewhere in there. So I'd, I'd have to say... Let's say I'm going to go big. I'm going to say 150,000 kills. That's a very good guess. Um, now, in total, uh, in total character deaths, major characters. If you add Dean into it, there were a total of 231 major character deaths over the 15 seasons. But uh, if you include everyone that died, say in the very uh, fun scene you did uh, in season five, where an entire town gets sacrificed, I went into the census records and calculated that uh, among other things uh, if you go through the 15 seasons and include multiple worlds uh somewhere around 334.4 billion oh wow i didn't go big <laughs> i didn't go big well, i could... forgot about all that we had alternate universes there's all kinds of death going on in supernatural <laughs> yeah it... now, is this your own calculation or is this from super wiki this is from me uh the whole reason okay. i did it is i saw the wiki and i looked at the number it's like that's not right I'm, I'm pretty sure they're off on that. So I have a episode by episode breakdown of exactly what, where, when, and why. Wow. So okay. it's just, if That's you ever great. get bored or, or want to bore somebody else, <laughs> take a look at it. It's a lot of fun. I, I know I died more than a handful of times. Oh, most certainly. I, I've got that listed in there too. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to uh, – talk to us obviously you're very easily uh recognizable on twitter if uh if you want to know what uh what mr pellegrino is up to you can definitely follow him on that don't forget to keep an eye out for uh, his his variety of different upcoming projects but specifically uh the guardian project uh definitely take a look at what's going to be coming with that uh I, you said something uh, before we started uh, about some uh uh, stuff for the um, uh, Ayn Rand Institute, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I'm going to be doing these thing called these little this little series called reality checks. So uh, little little philosophy bites, so to speak, about topics. Sometimes current events, sometimes you know um, bigger bigger topics. Sounds like it'll be a lot of fun. I I, I look forward to some intellectual delving. <laughs> But uh, anytime you want to come back and talk to us, you have something cool coming out. We would love to talk to you again and uh, go over the details. And uh, again, just thank you very much for coming to talk to us today. Thank you. It's been a joy. And thank you for being patient and, uh, for, for, for my late start. Thank you so much. <laughs> no worries. Hey there, Pudding People. Don't forget to check us out on social media. We are very easily recognizable on Twitter as at Real Pudding Guys. We're also on Instagram and Facebook as what, Richard? Pudding Guys. <laughs> easy to find, easy to enjoy. We are right there to share our tidbits of wisdom, of comic book movies and comics and pop culture in general. We love to hear your interactions. Definitely come back and see us. But also, don't forget the most important of our social media presence. We are on Patreon, where we are at Real Pudding Guys as well. And for just $1 per month, you can help support us as we create new content, as we improve our product all around and share with you the wonders that is pop culture. Exciting, right? Pudding guys. <laughs> Definitely come visit. All right, pudding people, don't forget to come back next week. We have the fantastic Dean Devlin returning to the show for the second time to talk to us about the new Leverage Redemption. 
pretty exciting. I actually get to participate this time, and we talk about a lot of cool aspects, and he's got some nice stories to tell. Yes, very exciting. We cannot wait to share this with you next week. See you there. 